104.6. Radio Borders Youth Association. Good afternoon, everyone. You are listening to the sound of Universal Compassion. Today is the fourth of September. We will continue listen to Tangents Pee-wee's program with the book Mind Trainings Like the Race of Sun by Lam Kapow. Please enjoy. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello, welcome once more to the program, Nam Pell and his text, Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun. If you were with us for the last program, you may remember we started covering the precepts of mind training, which in the Tibetan come in verses and slogans. The English translation I have, though, only presents them all as slogans, and the first of these is, every yoga should be performed as one, meaning that if we were practicing mind training, everything we do should be geared towards concern for all others, and in particular, attaining enlightenment to best help them. While Namkarpal states, ensure that all yogas of all such activities as eating, dressing and residing are assimilated into the single practice of training the mind, Pema Children interprets it as, this one intention is to awaken bodhicitta, to awaken the heart. We could say all activities should be done with the intention of communicating. And this is a practical suggestion. All activities should be done with the intention of speaking so that another person can hear you rather than using words that cause the barriers to go up and the ears to close. In this process, we also learn how to listen and how to look. And that led us to Thich Nhat Hanh's instructions on how to communicate with deep listening and loving speech. In fact, Thich Nhat Hanh makes deep listening and loving speech the fourth of his five mindfulness trainings with this pledge. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech, and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and compassionate listening in order to relieve suffering and to promote reconciliation and peace in myself and among other people, ethnic and religious groups and nations. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am committed to speaking truthfully using words that inspire confidence, joy and hope. When anger is manifesting in me, I am determined not to speak. I will practice mindful breathing and walking in order to recognize and to look deeply into my anger. I know that the roots of anger can be found in my wrong perceptions and lack of understanding of the suffering in myself and in the other person. I will speak and listen in a way that can help myself and the other person to transform suffering and see the way out of difficult situations. I am determined not to spread news that I do not know to be certain and not to utter words that can cause division or discord. I will practice right diligence to nourish my capacity for understanding, love, joy and inclusiveness and gradually transform anger, violence and fear that lie deep in my consciousness. 
Now, if we keep this in mind, wouldn't it go a long way to making all our communications part of our mind training? But before we continue, let's first think about motivation, as we usually do. Following on Pema Chodron's advice that our one intention should be to awaken bodhicitta, let's make that our motivation for the program today, as well as everything else we do. So let's take a moment to go into ourselves and check our motivation. Thank you. Just to continue with deep listening, here is a part of a Dharma talk that Thich Nhat Hanh gave to children in his monastery, Plum Village. As we already know, we have to practice before we can listen deeply. Sometimes we can also translate deep listening as compassionate listening, that is, to listen with compassion or to listen with love. We hear with one aim only. We don't listen in order to criticize, to blame, to correct the person who is speaking or condemn the person. We only listen with one aim, and that is to relieve the suffering of the one we are listening to. We have to sit still, we have to sit with inner freedom, and we have to be 100% present, body and mind, listening so the other can relieve his or her suffering. If the other person says things which are not right, which are wrong perceptions, we may have a wish to respond, to say, that's wrong, and to argue with them. But we mustn't do that. We have to sit and listen. If we can sit for an hour, that is a golden hour. That hour is an hour which can heal and transform. We can do much better than psychotherapists, because there are psychotherapists who haven't learned how to listen deeply, who haven't learned how to listen compassionately. Psychotherapists have their own suffering, maybe a great deal of suffering, so their capacity to listen deeply may not be that very great. We don't know much about the theories of psychotherapy, but we have practiced stopping and looking deeply. We've already practiced listening deeply, and therefore we can do better than psychotherapists. We use the method of listening deeply, first of all for our loved ones and our family, and once we are successful with our family, we can help our friends. We can listen deeply so that the world suffers less. That is our practice. Of course, psychotherapists have to learn how to listen deeply according to the practice in order to be really good psychotherapists. When we can listen deeply, when we know how to do it, when we know how to speak lovingly as well, that has the function of reviving the communication between two people. Actually, when we know how to listen deeply, we will already speak lovingly. In our own time, the technology of communication is very great. We have all kinds of communication, like email, fax and telephone, and therefore we can be in touch with each other very quickly. And in a couple of hours, the news can be taken from one end of the world to the other. But there's obstruction in the communication between people in the family, between father and son, between wife and husband. Therefore, it is very important for us to learn how to listen deeply. The reason that father and mother make each other suffer is that they don't understand each other. They don't know how to listen to each other deeply. They don't have the capacity to use loving speech. Father and mother do not know that while they are making each other suffer, they are also making their children suffer. And who are their children? Their children are their continuation. To say it in another way, 
Our children are ourselves. And when we make ourselves suffer, when we make our husband or wife suffer, we're also making our children suffer. Our children will also make our grandchildren suffer because we don't have the capacity to show to our children the art of making happiness or the art of making our spouses happy. And how can our children learn that if they can't learn it from us? If they don't learn it, they will grow up and make the same mistakes we, we have made and the cycle of samsara will carry on in our children and our suffering will be handed on to our children and our children's suffering will be handed on to our grandchildren and the cycle of samsara will never come to an end. We have to put an end to the cycle by the method of listening deeply and using loving speech. Using loving speech and listening deeply will establish communication and when there is communication and understanding between us, that is Thich Nhat Hanh. So deep listening and loving speech is an integral part of performing everything we do with the one intention. And that is, as Chogyam Trumpa says, being gentle with all others, or as Pema Chodron maintains, to awaken the heart, to awaken bodhicitta. Now let's move on to another commentary on this slogan, that of B. Alan Wallace. In his commentary, The Seven Point Mind Training, he translates the slogan as Practice all yogas by means of one. And he has this to say. Thousands upon thousands of practices are presented within the context of Buddhism. Aside from the practices intended while sitting cross-legged in meditation, there are specific practices for eating, sleeping and manifold situations, each with individual actions. But Sechi Bua, now I don't quite know who he's talking about here, but probably some Tibetan master, points out, that those of us who have entered the door of this Dharma can practice the essence of all those yogas or spiritual practices by means of the mind training. This training, which essentially is the cultivation of the two bodhicittas, can transform any other type of activity, particularly for those of us leading very active lives where the demands of the practice may struggle against the demands that life circumstances make on our time. This tension between the longing for more time for spiritual practice and the needs of family, job and bills to pay is not necessarily a negative thing. What we do with it is the critical point. One possible response is to conclude that spiritual growth is the very core of the meaning of human existence and everything else takes a backseat to it. In this case, we forget the struggle and devote our life to spiritual practice even at the sacrifice of things that would otherwise lie within grasp, such as wealth, fame, reputation and luxury. Another response assumes spiritual practice to be impractically difficult and unrealistic, in which case we leave it to others, or maybe for later when we have more time, perhaps after retirement. We focus on more important things, like making money to pay the bills, and the spiritual practice is pushed into the background, at zero magnitude or just minimum maintenance. Consider a third possible response. As adults living in contemporary society with obligations to others such as our children, we recognize that it would be irresponsible to walk out. Regardless of how much we are drawn to the spiritual life, it is simply not appropriate. Remember the Buddha's life in this context. If you are confident that you will attain enlightenment within a short period, as the Buddha did, then I would recommend that you walk out today. 
the Buddha was able to return with such blessings for his family that the grief they felt on his leaving was outshone, as the stars are outshone by the sun when it arises in the morning. If you have that confidence, then even the needs of a family must be abandoned. But unless you have that confidence, their demands on your time are legitimate. So, recognizing that we have certain obligations and recognizing at the same time that spiritual practice is the core of a meaningful life, what do we do? There really is an answer. It's not easy, but it's tremendously fruitful and it keeps on opening and opening further. Transform those actions that are already obligations by applying Dharma to them. Take eating, for instance. We have to do it two or three times a day, but we don't have to wolf down the food. There's no one who cannot sit and pause first for 30 seconds. Even fast food is worth the 30 seconds it takes to recognize the immense number of beings who have provided us with this food. Pausing like this ties us into the community of life, at least on planet Earth, as we recognize that we are indebted to others. We have received... And as we take the food, let us do it with the aspiration. May this be returned. May I use my abilities to the fullest to serve those who have served me. And that includes everyone, directly or indirectly. The service may occur on a very mundane level, but insofar as we mature spiritually, our responsibility increases according to our abilities. Not because someone tells us, now you have to do this, but simply as we gain insight into the nature and sources of suffering and of contentment, then we have something all the more valuable to offer others. Eating, taking care of the body, going on vacations can all be part of spiritual practice. All of us need time to relax, but it need not be a break in spiritual practice if we recognize this too as a way to refresh ourselves, restoring vitality, good cheer and balance, so that we can serve again with creativity and intelligence. With this one yoga, we can transform everything we do. All our actions can be employed in the cultivation of ultimate and relative bodhicitta. For those of us with many demands in our time, this is an utterly priceless system of practice. So says B. Alan Wallace. And in his book, Happiness, the monk philosopher and person known as the happiest man in the world, Mathieu Ricard, talks a little about how to bring real happiness into our lives through a little spiritual practice every day. He first describes the happiness of wise men, like the Dalai Lama, and others, not all of whom are great spiritual leaders. He writes, I myself have spent 35 years living among not only sages and spiritual masters, but also a number of ordinary people whose inner serenity and joy help them to withstand most of the ups and downs of life. These people have nothing to gain for themselves and are therefore entirely available to others. My friend Alan Wallace relates the case of a Tibetan hermit whom he knew well and who told him, with no pretensions whatsoever, he was living peacefully in a hermitage making demands of no one, that he'd lived for twenty years in a state of continuous bliss. Matthew Ricard says, this is not to do with how better one religion or system of thought is over another, but it shows that if a wise man can be happy, then happiness must be possible. And he goes on to say, 
Now, this is a cr- crucial point because so many of us essentially believe that real happiness is impossible. Such wise men are our example and our inspiration, and we need them to show us what, can we, what we can become. The point here, he says, is not that we need to reject wholesale the lives we are leading, but that we can benefit immensely from the wisdom of those who have elucidated the dynamics of happiness and suffering. He goes on to point out that these wise people were not made that way, they became it. And I would say much of their becoming was through mind training. Matthew Ricard continues, This is all very inspiring, you might say, but what good is it to me in my daily life, where I have a family and a job and spend most of my time in circumstances very different from those enjoyed by sages and hermits. Yet the wise man is indeed relevant to all our lives in that he strikes a note of hope. He shows me what I could become. He has trod the path open to all, each step of which is a source of enrichment. We can't all become Olympic javelin athletes, he says, but we can all learn to throw the javelin and we can develop some ability to do so. You don't have to be Andre Agassi to love playing tennis or Louis Armstrong to delight in playing a musical instrument. In every sphere of human activity, there are sources of inspiration whose perfection, far from discouraging us, in fact whets our enthusiasm by holding out an admirable vision of that to which we aspire. Isn't that why the great artists, the men and women of conviction, the heroes, are beloved and respected? Spiritual practice can be enormously beneficial. The fact is, it is possible to undergo serious spiritual training by devoting some time each day to meditation. More people than you might think do so while leading regular family lives and doing absorbing work. The positive benefits of such a life far outweigh the few problems of schedule arrangement. In this way, we can launch an inner transformation that is based on day-to-day reality. I will return to Matthew Ricard shortly, but what he says there resonates a lot with me. So many people talk about their eagerness to do spiritual practice and maybe even attend the occasional meditation class, but never create enough time in their day for a regular practice. I've heard it in the usual excuses so many times. I don't have time. I'm so busy. The kids take up all my time. I'll do it someday when I don't have so much on my plate, and so on. But that is actually saying that they will never engage in spiritual practice because until death it will always be put off into the future. It's a bit like when I was in my mid-twenties and decided to leave everything and go sailing around the world. I'd never sailed before, but it sounded like a great thing to do. So I applied for a crewing position on a yacht and surprisingly was accepted. Now, while we were preparing the yacht in the harbour, I was living aboard and people would come to wander around and look at the various boats in the harbour. Some would speak to me and ask what I was doing. When I told them, often they would tell me how lucky I was and how they would just love to pull up anchor and sail into adventure. Well, just do it, I told them. It only takes you to make up your own mind. But then the excuses would come. They had a house and a mortgage. They had a family. They had commitments here and there and so on. Then I knew they were just dreamers. They would never do anything like that. They were truly anchored to their everyday mundane life and only a cataclysm would move them. It's the same with spiritual practice. 
unless we take some time out of our day, every day, to be with ourselves and look within, to come to terms with the strange and brave new world within, we will just be dreamers and will never achieve happiness, never mind the continuous bliss of the hermit. Yes, as Alan Wallace says, we can make every action part of our spiritual journey, but it's made infinitely more difficult if we don't spend time with our inner world. Here is Matthew Ricard again on his own experience. He says, When I was working at the Institute Pasteur and immersed in Parisian life, the few moments I reserved every day for contemplation brought me enormous benefits. They lingered like a scent in the day's activities and gave them an entirely new value. By contemplations, I mean not merely a moment of relaxation, but an inward turning of the gaze. It's very fruitful to watch how the thoughts arise and to contemplate the state of serenity and simplicity that is always present behind the scrim of thoughts, be they gloomy or upbeat. This is not as complicated as it might seem at first glance. You need only give a little of your time to the exercise in order to feel its impact and appreciate its fruitfulness. By gradually acquiring through introspective experience a better understanding of how thoughts are born, we learn how to fend off mental toxins. Once we've found a little bit of inner peace, it's much easier to lead a flourishing emotional and professional life. Similarly, if we free ourselves of all insecurities and inner fears, which are often connected to excessive self-centeredness, we have less to dread and are naturally more open to others and better armed to face the vagaries of existence. No state, no church or despot can insist on our obligations to develop human qualities. It's up to us to make that choice. As geneticist, demographer Luca Cavalli Svorza and his son Francesco so eloquently put it, our inner freedom knows no limits other than those we impose on it or allow to be imposed on it. And that freedom also holds great power. It can transform an individual, allow him to nurture all his capacities and to live every moment of his life in utter fulfillment. When individuals change by bringing their consciousness to maturity, the world changes too, because the world is made up of individuals. Matthew Ricard continues, No matter what your outer circumstances might be, there is always deep within you a potential for flourishing. This is a potential for loving kindness, compassion and inner peace. Try to get in touch with and experience this potential that is always present, like a nugget of gold in your heart and mind. This potential needs to be developed and matured in order to achieve a more stable sense of well-being. However, this will not happen by itself. You need to develop it as a skill. For that, begin by becoming more familiar with your own mind. This is the beginning of meditation. And then he describes a very simple basic practice of sitting comfortably and just quietly observing one's mind, watching the thoughts come and go without stopping them or fueling them. That is all. Let everything arise and fall naturally without becoming involved. Just this practice, he says, will bring the joy and warmth of a calmer mind. He writes, After a while your thoughts will become like a peaceful river. If you practice regularly, eventually your mind will easily become serene like a calm ocean. Whenever new thoughts arise, like waves raised by the winds, do not be bothered by them, 
they will soon dissolve into the ocean. Now, as he says, this is the start of the inward journey leading eventually to the final bliss. But it brings so much benefit and it is on the basis of this understanding that we can build the great positive qualities like loving kindness, compassion and bodhicitta. It's much more difficult if we are continually rushing around from one thing to another, one project to another, with a mind in constant turmoil, and never give ourselves the time to sit with ourselves in silence. On www.lamayeshi.com, in a talk on the good heart, Lama Zoparumashe, spiritual director of the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mahayana Tradition, speaks about the benefits of the motivation of bodhicitta for every action in our lives and its relationship to tranquility. He says, When we take care of our own mind and the good heart, then whatever the people around us do, harm or benefit whatever, because we're practicing and controlling our mind, disturbing thoughts don't bother us. The harming or helping actions of the people around us do not upset us. These emotions don't bring us up and down because we are able to practice the good heart, bodhicitta, and there is tranquility or peace day and night in our lives. When we don't continue our practice, our mind becomes like a water bubble or like boiling hot water. Our life becomes like that because our mind is like that, so there's no peace. Every single thing that other people do affects us a lot because we do not practice. A small behavior or a slight movement or action by the people around us affects us. Even how the skin of their faces appears to us and what it shows, tight, dark or upset. If their faces have wrinkles or narrow or fine eyes, our mind is very happy. Their faces become so important for our mind. When we don't practice or take care of our mind, when we don't control our mind, we're completely dependent on external things. So our mind changes and there are ups and downs, upset, happiness, all the emotional life changes because we rely so much on the outside and we have external expectations. When we don't practice and look after our own mind, when there's no practice and nothing controlling or guiding us, when we don't take care of our own mind and our own life, then it's like that and we have problems. Our basic problem is following the selfish mind that expects all good things to happen for us. We become a friend of the selfish mind and we follow the selfish mind and when the selfish mind does not succeed and what we expect does not happen, we collapse. So we can see how all our happiness and all our problems come from this way of thinking. With a skillful way of thinking, our whole life becomes happy and with an unskillful way of thinking, we are unhappy and the conditions of our life become miserable. For example, when somebody is angry with us, as long as there's anger in our mind, there's the possibility for anger to arise. As long as there's the possibility for anger to arise, there's the possibility to find the enemy outside. If there's no possibility for anger to arise in our heart, there's no possibility to find the enemy outside. So, whether we have an enemy or not depends on whether we have anger or not. It's very clear from this that if every person on earth or every dog or every bird is angry at us, even if the dogs are biting us, if there's no anger in our mind, we will not find even one enemy on this earth among them all. If our mind is rich in compassion and loving kindness, 
if our heart is filled with compassion towards other sentient beings, then even if all people and animals are angry and harm us, from our side, we see them as our friend or relative. If our mind has compassion, then all sentient beings are our friends, and we feel that everyone is close to our heart. Therefore, we can see that the good heart, loving kindness and compassion, and bodhicitta are incredibly precious, and we can see how unbelievably important it is to practice them. In our life, in every hour, we need to pay attention and always put every single effort into having a good heart. That's Lama Zopara Mache, and obviously it makes perfect sense to perform all our activities, all our yogas, with this one intention to benefit others. And that is where we must leave it for today as we've run out of time. Thanks for joining us and please dedicate to attaining enlightenment for all sentient beings. I hope you'll tune in next week. And until then, go well and go safely. Goodbye. <laughs>